So who are your top leaders? In my case, I have leaders for every region, Europe, Asia Pacific, North America. I have a technology leader. I have a, you know, kind of a finance and people leader. I have an operations leader, COO. So to pull those leaders together regularly, you know, and then um, have them report on what they're doing and have them and ask them questions, questions like, what do you know that I don't know that I should know about my business? And having regular meetings with those internal or inner circle leaders. And when you're going to make a big decision, vet that decision through them. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, I hope you're having a great day. And one of my encouragements around expanding that impact that you have in your life, today's show is a lot about sort of business principles and my guest, Jeff, I've been on the stage with him before and we've had an opportunity to know each other and have lunch together. So just delighted to have Jeff Williams on the show. But one of the things we really talk about is so many times it comes up, it almost seems like it's unavoidable is, you know, do you know your why? Do you know what you love doing? Do you know what you're good at? Do you know what's most important to you? You know, what are your core values? And so CRG's put together this whole series of online e-courses 24-7 that you can go and grow and develop. And Jeff really talked about being obsessed with learning. And so we have this course, what do you really value? It's not that long, just a couple of hours of video, but also you get the assessment and the values preference indicator. So register online for that. It's, you can go to crgleader.com under online courses. And take yourself step by step. What do you really value? Take the assessment. Determine, am I living those values? If I'm not, then what do I need to shift, adjust, and change so that you can have the opportunity to feel fulfilled at the optimum level? There's nothing, life's not perfect. There's always going to be stuff. But how could I have the majority of what I'm doing, who I'm being, how I'm acting, just really reflect the core values that I have? As always, if you like what we're doing, please share it, pass it on, leave a positive message or rating on whatever platform you're listening on. If you know of a guest that really would rock the show, just please pass that on to us as well. And also let us know about any other kind of insights that you have as a listener. We love to hear from you. So here is today's show with Jeff Williams from Absolute Results. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keith. Well, this week we have a colleague. Actually, we've been on the stage together presenting at a conference of other business owners, and it's kind of delightful to finally get a hold of him because he's so busy. He's still traveling. He's all over the world. And so welcome to the show, Jeff Williams. Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Ken. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, because way back in the 90s, we had an automotive consulting company called Results Consulting Group, and your company is called Absolute Results. So <laughs> I, I don't know who was there first, but it really doesn't matter. It's just great to have you on the show. And so, Jeff, you know, we'll get into your business of training and supporting and developing others here in a moment, but we love to hear your story. So uh, who is Jeff? Like, where were you born? And what were some of the things that dynamics of growing up years for you? Oh, my goodness. I, I grew up just outside of Ottawa. So in the PN Ontario, little suburb of Ottawa and uh, the nation's capital. 
And uh, my goodness, I was born in 1968 and just grew up in a very uh, interesting childhood. You know, my friend, I think a lot of people that have uh, fought for success is because they were overcoming something. And I grew up in a very broken home and a very uh, lower, lower, lower middle class home. And, and but I had uh, in my early, early years, some love and encouragement and that, that saw me through some tough times. And, and uh, you know, um, certainly going through my teenage years, I would mow the lawn and shovel snow to make money to help buy groceries and always wanted to be successful. So a bit of that drive uh, kind of carried over eventually into business. Mm. So it's interesting, as you mentioned that, that I'm mowing the lawn to buy groceries. What's that like to be a kid, you know, early teens with that kind of responsibility? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's serious. It's a little bit scary at times. But, you know, you just, you just do what you have to do, and you just really learn to be resourceful. I think that's probably the best way to describe it, you know. Mm. Um, you just learn. You step up. You man up, you know. Um, you're in a, in a single-parent a single parent home, and, uh, you know, somebody needs to do something about it. And so you just do whatever you can, and uh, you get busy. Mm, for sure. And, of course, you know, those that grow up in those dynamics, sometimes you miss some of your, quote-unquote, childhood. Uh, but you certainly move into the maturity category fairly quickly. So after high school, what uh, what direction did you go, Jeff? You know, I've kind of an unusual story. Um, you know, it, one of the amazing things about life, I think when any of us look back on our life, when we had defining moments or pivotal times that shaped us um, negative or positively, but let's focus on the positive. It's usually because there was somebody who believed in us, somebody who encouraged us. It might have been a chance meeting. It might have been a relationship. But when somebody speaks into your life, um, often there's an opportunity, uh, an opportunity that comes out of that. So I remember being a teenager and uh, one person showed up in my life. I was going to a Catholic church and the priest was a sharp, young, charismatic uh, man who took an interest in me and, and inspired mm. me. And I saw how effective he was and how he would rally the youth and he was making a difference. So I thought maybe I'll be a priest like Father Joe. So believe it or not, 18 years old, I went into the monastery. And uh, my goodness. Really? Yeah, I did to be a Catholic priest <laughs> of all things. So <laughs> I am sure glad that wasn't my career path. I spent two years. And after that, I thought, this is not for me. And so I ended up in the restaurant business. And then after probably close to a decade in the restaurant business, the car business. And uh, I've been in the car business now, gosh, about 27 years with my own company for 25 years. But uh, now I got to back up, Jeff, because I mean you're a high energy guy, so I got to put the reins on the on the Clydesdale here. So, uh, and I say that with a smirk and a smile on my face. How did the restaurant business come out of coming out of a monastery? Like, well, I was working in that restaurant business before that, so I would you know mow lawns and shovel snow and bust tables and wash dishes and and the rest of that. So I was actually doing restaurant jobs um, before um, during my high school years. So I'd been in the restaurant business before. So I just defaulted to that when, you know, um, the career path wasn't going to be. Uh... <laughs> yeah, priest. Yeah, there you go, my friend. You know. Yeah, well, that's that's okay, Jeff. We we can talk off air about uh, just the perception of that. So that's pretty cool. No, that and that's positive, not a negative. When you think about the restaurant business, were you in there as an employee? Did you own your own place, or what was what were you doing for that decade in that uh, space? You know, I was I was a server. I was a waiter. I was eventually a bartender. I was a restaurant manager at the end of it all. But I just really found like, I enjoyed people. I came kind of came out of my shell. I you know, I could have fun and I could. Uh, you know, just to make, help people have a great experience, help people enjoy food. And I, 
to this day, I had a great love of creativity. There's a bit of a creativity in me that I didn't know I had. And so, you know, mm. when I involved in giving people a great experience and talking to the chef about some unique menu items, it, 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 it lit something inside me. Cool, cool. Yeah. So then you transitioned out of that. And was that directly into the car business or was there something in between there? You know, it's really interesting because sometimes what happens, you get to these crossroads in life and you kind of go, okay, this isn't working, so what am I going to do? And I, I remember being the restaurant manager of a restaurant in Campbell River. And again, I was Mr. Creative, wanting to have fun, create these great experiences. And if you know Campbell River, it's a fishing and logging town. So, you know, I'd be there with, working with the chef to create these special dishes, and people wanted meat well done in potatoes. <laughs> So I remember the hotel manager actually calling me aside one day and said, Jeff, he said, this isn't for you. You're far too creative. You actually may not realize it, but you have a sales aptitude. He said, why don't you get out of the restaurant business and get into sales and you'll make a million bucks. Wow. Well, so he had enough fortitude not to really squelch you, but to sort of light a transition thought into your mind. He did. He said, what you're doing now is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic and get out of this industry, get into sales. And so, you know, right around that time, I, I made a move down to Victoria. I was newly married, wanted to have kids. And uh, or I think we may have been, I don't know if you're pregnant or not, but I just started working. I started answering ads, had a chance to do some car sales, had a chance to do a variety of things. And out of all of um, those experiences, ended up working for a training company and then starting my own training company. With a matter now, of you were doing some car sales, and then yeah. what was the training? I think I remember the training company you were with, and that, what was the name of that one? Yeah, it was called Automotivator, so it did training in the car business. Right, right. I remember that uh, when I was, that was back in the 90s, early 2000s as well, wasn't it? It was. It would have been, yeah, I started Absolute Results in 96, so it would have been 94, my friend. Yeah, well, there we go. Uh, we were in the same space at the same time but didn't know each other way back when in the 90s. Well, it's not six degrees of separation. It's more like two, I think, as you unfold. Now, what was it when you were selling cars and then, of course, you got into the training? That's a big step for people to go from, okay, I'm going to sell some cars all of a sudden to be selling training. So take us through where, how did that even, how did you even learn about them and how did that go from selling cars to teaching other people to do it? Well, I had a friend who had a used car lot in Victoria, Rob, and uh, that's why I got to get my feet wet in the, in the car sales business. And then I answered an ad, which turned out to be selling training over the phone. So a gentleman who, uh, who had a training company who owned Automotivators back then, he had produced VHS cassettes on how to sell cars because he was trying to duplicate himself, right? And right. he needed someone to cold call dealers and sell these $1,600 set of VHS cassettes on how to sell cars that they could use in their store to train their people. And uh, I thought, I think I can do that. And so I began cold calling, telemarketing, if you want to call it, and um, calling dealers over the phone, mailing them, uh, uh, you know, demo VHS cassettes. And I immersed myself in the training business and uh, began to study, study every piece of literature about training and automotive I could literally get my hands on, originally just so I could sell, but then I began to realize, wow, there's so many, there's so many similarities, there's so many, there's so many things I can learn and grow on. And then literally within two years of selling hundreds of sets of VHS cassettes to car dealers, um, he looked at me and said, Jeff, you're pretty good on the phone. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess I am. I'm pretty successful selling your videos. He said, well, could you create a telephone training course for these car dealers? Because all of my training is about, you know, face-to-face -face sales in the dealership. 
Mm-hmm. And so within a few months, I created a telephone training course, and then I began to go on the road and literally train these skills to salespeople on his behalf and then eventually on my own. Wow. Wow. So uh, for those people that are listening, and I'm just reminding them, Jeff, about how old we are, there was no email back in 96. So uh, people say, well, why is he cold calling? Why doesn't he just email them? And why don't you look? Well, websites were just starting to sort of emerge in the yeah. 90s. And I know our company had one back then, but there was nobody else looking. So <laughs> isn't that amazing to think about there was no email back then and that's why we had to do it that way? I know. We would phone. We would fax the demo agreements. We would mail uh, demo uh, VHS cassettes. Oh, my goodness. huh? Oh, uh, yeah, just crazy, just crazy. So you, you created this telephone technique or this telephone course. What were some of the things that were in that, Jeff, that, that really caused you to be successful on the phone but also to teach others? Well, I think as we've found over, over the years, when you, can, when you can build a framework. So originally I had 10 steps to an effective phone call, and there was literally a 10-step process I'd go through, and then there were some scripts or word tracks to follow. When you, can, uh, when you can create a game plan, you know, and then a pathway to success, and again, it started off with 10 simple steps that we'd go through, and eventually I simplified it down to five simple steps. And, and now, 25 years later, we, we teach the three uh, selling skills. But having a pathway to follow, inspecting it, um, doing a lot of interaction, like one of the things I think I learned early on, and I'm not sure where I learned this, Ken, but it was to be a constant student. And I, I think... Early in my training days when I started Absolute Results, I knew I wasn't that good. I knew I had this course, this skill. I, when someone called a dealership, I could show a way for myself or any salesman to turn that lead into an appointment. All right? I had the right game plan and word tracks, and I knew the numbers and the data. But I was just so hungry to learn. And so literally, I would go to dealerships. And i, I got to tell you, in the early days, sometimes I'd drive 10, 12 hours through the night, sleep in my car, do my one-day workshop, and in Lewiston, Idaho, but when I was there, I was going through the shelves and the cupboards of that dealership and would see dozens of training programs by every other automotive trainer. Many had never been opened. Many were covered in dust, and I would grab those cassettes. I'd take them for the night. I would duplicate them. I would study them. I would talk, ask the best salesman, hey, how do you overcome this objection? And I just became a sponge because I knew I wasn't that good, but I really did want to add value. And so I just developed this hunger to learn and to grow. And uh, my goodness, it, it paid it paid uh, paid off. Uh, dividends huge. Now you're you're working for this gentleman, and now you're thinking about your own training company. What what was that like, as far as just the chutzpah, the courage to kind of step out onto your own? Well, you know what? It was just a time of transition. You know, he was merging his company with another company, and they were trying to put the right product mix together. And he still kind of wanted me to sell videos because they were still offering them. But that really, I realized I had a new gift and ability. And so, really, it was just a, it was just a change of season and time. And I found myself going, you know what? Um, I think I can do this. I think I can do it for myself. And um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've kept relationship with this gentleman, and, and to this day, he actually is one of my leaders in my company, and I'm grateful for him because um, he had so much value and he has. He ended up going and running a dealership actually. He ran a dealership, bought his own store, was very successful for a long time. So you know, in the car business, you know, lots of those transitions happen. So I had the opportunity to say, I've got this course, I've got, I've got some contacts, can I create something with it? Cool. So you uh, transition out, you start your own company. Take us through sort of that first 
few years of that business and in some of the things you went through that, you know, for a podcast, we're here to really to serve the listeners about ideas, journey, story that really encourages them. What would be some things you can listen, leave with the listeners today that would be helpful as part of that transition into your own company? Sure. I think if I think of two or three things that I look back on and I'm really grateful for, one of them is just, and it came out of necessity, I had to make it happen. Had a, had a newborn baby at the time. Um, I just had to pay rent. And, you know, I didn't have an office. I joke about borrowing my friend's garage as my first office, which I did, you know, but I just had to make it happen. It was do whatever it takes. If I had to drive to Lewiston, Idaho to get one training gig to pay the rent, that's what I did. So I think part of it was just a willingness to, to do whatever it takes to be successful. Um, that'd be part of it. Uh, the second is that uh, that hunger to learn, and and here's what's interesting. I would hear of dealers that were very successful, and I would cold call them, and I'd say, "Hey, can I come and train my course for you?" Like I'll never forget, um, and I don't know where I really got the courage for this, Ken, except it was the hunger to learn. I remember hearing about this dealership that was number one in the world in Arizona, number one, mm. 800 cars a month, like beyond, beyond. And I called that general manager 13 times. He didn't once return my calls. But then I was going to Arizona for another client. I knocked on his door and he eventually said, come and train my salespeople and my managers. And so here I am three years into my company, but I'm delivering this course I knew I can do really well. But I managed to get in with one of the largest stores and he takes me for lunch and I just start picking his brain. And he just opens up and shares. Successful people love to share. Right? especially if they don't determine that you can be a threat in any way. And in those times where I cold called or built relationships with dealers and uh, came with my little one or two courses that I had at the time, but when I would ask questions, they were so eager to share ideas and principles. And literally, I look back at that day in Arizona with Earnhardt Ford, the things that Larry shared with me over lunch, they were defining moments in my career. And they just came out of me just working hard, seeking people who were the best, trying to add some value and saying, hey, can I pick your brain? You know, it's interesting, Jeff. I'm just here smirking and smiling in a, just an amazing positive way about calling the number one dealer and then just saying, I'm going to be persistent until. Mm. I want to be there. I want to have that connection. This person, this team, this organization, this leader knows something that other people don't know or is doing something that other people aren't doing and I'm going to be in that space. So, oh, yeah. so when you think about that, you, you said, oh, I'm not sure where I got it, but you obviously got this idea of, of even doing this. Where do you think that came from? <laughs> I think, honestly, I was just so hungry to learn. Like I said before, I knew I wasn't that good, but I knew I, I, I just wanted to add more value. And they obviously were doing something others weren't doing. And even if he kicked me out of his dealership, if I at least got to walk around the showroom and, and, and just see how they were set up and organized, maybe I'd pick something up and learn. Um, and I just, uh, I just had that deep desire. If I'm going to do it, I want to do it. If I'm going to talk to a dealer, the more I can know and learn, the more value I can add. Mm. You know, and, I, and Ken, I think that ties to another really interesting principle. Um, one of the things I discovered early on in my training was I would go and do this workshop and teach these principles, but I'd go back the next month sometimes and the salesmen weren't doing a lot of it. It wasn't sticking. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, you know, you know, and in a couple hours in a boardroom, you can role play, give them some good material, but how do you make it stick? And so I remember about three years in going, this isn't sticking. And then I had the idea, well, what if we took the training and cut it in half? 
All right. Spent four hours teaching the techniques, but then spent four hours making phone calls together and actually getting on the phone and calling customers because when they use it, they're more likely to, to, to keep the skills and benefit from the mm-hmm. skills, make appointments while I'm there with them. Maybe they'll keep the activity up. So in those first three years, I began to go, what are ways that I can, I can make my training stick? And then, and then about a year later, I had this idea, well, I'm training skills. We call this the boardroom. We're making calls, which I call the boiler room, but we're calling customers. What if we had a really unique offer for the customer? So what if we actually would run a sale? And eventually the model I ended up five years in was that I would come and train and make calls for two days with the staff, and then we would have a one-day sale. And we would sell in one day what the dealer normally sells in a week because we'd have every salesman would have 10 appointments calling previous customers. And so it became a training event, but you know, the event was proof that the training worked and it actually helped them sell cars today. So, and it made the training stick because they saw success from it, not just success in appointments, success in making money in car deals. I, I would jokingly call it putting the candy on the vitamin, you know? <laughs> you know, every viewer knows they need to train, but is hesitant to spend money on training, but they'll spend money to sell cars. So I created this, this show how training um, I wasn't, you know, and, and that literally became the model that, that's grown to 26 countries around the world today. Cool, and congratulations on that. I think, Jeff, you make a very, very important point for everybody that's listening, and even for ourselves as we want to embrace a new skill or embrace an idea or do something new. And that is, you know, if I sit in a boardroom and you train me, that doesn't mean I have the confidence or the ability to do it. I have no evidence to do it, but if you come alongside me while I'm doing the calls, then I'm more than likely to implement it or, and you prove that. So Mm -hmm. part of what happens is telling somebody to do something and then watching them and coaching them to do it is two totally different levels of engagement. Sure. You have to have the confidence that you could do it yourself. And you know, when you put in the 10,000 calls or whatever you want to use and you've got those skills, it's almost like it's it's caught as much as it's taught. Mm, mm, Absolutely. Well, then you went from there and you were doing it. Now, you started to leverage this and hire other trainers to do it. So take us through sort of the scaling of your company when you first, you know, after you first started and got the model started working and started to do this sort of event process. How did you scale that? Well, you know, originally it was just necessity. I mean, all of a sudden, um, all these training clients that might have me come a couple times a year are saying, you know, you ran this event, we mailed 800, 1,000 customers in our database that are driving, you know, three or four-year-old cars, and we did this event, and we sold 20 or 30 cars. Well, I've got another 800 customers. Can you come back? And, and so instead of this sporadic training, I've got these, these dealers calling me and saying, hey, that was great, or I heard from a friend, and I just needed help. And so I reached out to some people I knew in the industry, was able to get my first kind of probably half a dozen. I'd say by, by the mid to by the mid two thousands, I probably had six, seven, eight trainers. And that's where we kind of were when, when the 2008, 2009 hit, I probably had uh, seven, eight trainers at the time. And I was doing maybe, we were doing maybe two, 250, 300 events a year across Canada primarily and a little bit in the States. So take us through how you uh, managed it. Now, for those people who are listening, maybe they're old enough, maybe not. I mean, 2008, of course, was the financial little blip along the way. Uh, how did you manage that, uh, especially in the car business when there was, you know, some financial difficulties that were going on as well? Yeah, you know, I think 
one of the principles that I've learned that I try to be really intentional about today and actually right now dealing with COVID and all the changes, it's, it's paying dividends and I'm learn, relearning it again, is you grow your, your business to a certain level, but then to go to the next level requires a whole new shift in thinking. Right? So I was forced into that almost accidentally. So we go into 2008, we're doing great, working with some dealer groups, got seven, eight trainers, do, you know, probably $3 million business, call it in revenue, I'm comfortable. I kind of pulled back to managing it a little bit. And then the global financial crisis hit. General Motors goes bankrupt. Chrysler goes bankrupt. All of a sudden, there's no inventory. The factories have shut down. And I find myself going, oh my goodness. And I really hadn't had the financial disciplines. I didn't know. I was a grassroots entrepreneur. I didn't really have the, the budgeting and structures and reserves. And, and all of a sudden, who do I lay off? Who do I not lay off? And um, it got ugly really fast. And I remember being in 2009, um, early 2009, having a bit of a, I don't know what you want to call it, a wake-up call where I think I had about $160,000 on five credit cards trying to keep the company going. Mm. And I had to look at myself and say, I can blame the economy. I can blame the global financial crisis, but I need to own some of this. I didn't have the skills at that time. I hadn't developed the leadership capacity to, to run a three point whatever million dollar business. And I looked at myself in the mirror and said, you know what? This will never happen to me again. And I got busy. I started hopping on planes, you name it. I think from then on for the next three or four years, I was at least 200 days a year on the road calling on dealers, manufacturers, dealer groups saying, I'm going to get out of this. I am not going to declare bankruptcy. I'm going to fight out of this, you know, and, um, and I am going to become the greatest student of leadership ever. And I will not ever allow this to happen again because I realized I hadn't developed the capacity in 2008 to run the business I had, or I'd be prepared, more prepared to deal with some of the challenges. Mm. Sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, where do you think you get that level of drive several times in your life where this has occurred? Some listeners saying, wow, where did that guy just get the chutzpah, get on the airplane and just push through it? Where, where, do, you, where do you get this drive that comes when you're up against the wall like that? Because other people just fold their cards and then walk away. You know, in, um, in the book, David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell has a whole chapter in there. It's called The Theory of Desirable Difficulty. And um, for any of your listeners, if they haven't read that chapter, I recommend they do. You know, um, without going into details, my, um, my, late, uh, my childhood years were very, 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 very tumultuous and traumatic. And I survived when I shouldn't have survived in retrospect. And, um, and um, I just, I, out of that, I learned, I, I developed a resiliency and, and I had a bit of a sense of purpose, too, um, and that I wanted to do something with my life. I wanted my life to measure and account for something. Um, and so with, with that kind of a, and I guess that came from my mother, you know, when she just told me from a child that there's something important and, and unique for you to do with your life and you're gifted. Um, and I remember hearing that and then going through just complete chaos um, that it's a miracle I survived. And, and, and coming through that, and, and I'm going to win. I'm going to find a way to do something with my life. And, and I had also, maybe that was why I ended up in the monastery, but I wanted to help other people. I had this passion to help other people in whatever way it was. You know, and, and it's weird that I end up in the car business, but, you know, in some ways, the car business is a business of second chances. And, uh, you know, when I, when, I, when I travel the world and talk to people in the business, I say, well, was it your dream to end up in the car business as a child, as a teenager? And 90% of the time they laugh and go, no, it wasn't. And so I say, so you, you got 
you, you got kicked out, <laughs> whatever it was, you had a dream and a goal, it didn't happen for you, and you ended up in the car business as a second chance. But you know what? For many, it's become their best chance. And can I help them become, can I help it become their best chance? So it's, it's just, a, it's just, a, I'm, I'm kind of going in circles, Ken, forgive me. I know you've got listeners that are trying to listen and make sense of all this, but you know, it was a combination of what I went through in my childhood that I survived through a desire to do something with my life, a sense of purpose, and I found a way I could do it. I found I found a business where I could be involved, and if I was willing to work mm-hmm. and study and learn, I could win. I didn't need a PhD, an MBA. I didn't need any of that, but I could create success. And there was an open playing field for those that would work and those that were smart. Well, I just thought it was important, Jeff, to ask the question on behalf of the listeners. I'm always just kind of paying attention to guest nuances and what you're saying. So thank you for uh, getting to the heart of the matter and just driving. I think one of the words you said was this whole idea about resilience. And mm-hmm. there's all kinds of data that's coming out about how important that is. Uh, you know, and especially, you know, when we're going through uh, difficult times globally or whatever, you know, whatever that's contributing to it is resilience is very, very uh, important as part of that. Now, you take your business and you learn the lesson that, okay, I wasn't maybe, I didn't have all the skills in place to have it, that level of business. What did you do to bring um, people around you that could complement you to run a business as you scaled it and started to grow it? You know, one of the things I did is I looked for mentors. You know, there was a gentleman who was running three or four large dealerships, and I would meet with him late at night and pick his brain and run ideas by him. And eventually he came on to when he retired from running dealerships to come and work for me, and he does to this day. Um, So I began to kind of build a network of people in the industry that I could just run ideas by. Um, I had a couple mentors who would come and help me as I had to restructure the business. A gentleman who has got a great financial background that I'd met kind of fortuitously and had a conversation with. So I began to seek out uh, mentorship. And then I think, as you know, Ken, back in 2013, as the business was really kind of skyrocketing and starting to become global, um, I had a chance to meet um, Dr. John Maxwell. And uh, it was kind of fortuitous. But, uh, you know, I think when you really work hard, you have that deep hunger, um, doors will open. And then the question is, um, are you willing to go down those doors and, and walk through those doors or break down those doors or, or not, you know? Mm. Well, I, I, I was coming there. I actually have John's name down on my list here because we're not going to miss that because I had the inside track on that. So, you know, for me, not everybody that's listening knows who John Maxwell is, but one of the, you know, foremost uh, authorities or thought leaders around leadership on the planet. Uh, and you had him personally mentoring you. What I'm curious about what you're willing to share that's not like completely private or confidential is what were the insights you gained from that time of being coached by John that would impact the audience and for them to think about or to consider or to ponder about? Sure. One of my my favorite little simple lessons, and, and that's where John is so gifted, you know, he uses the expression, can you put the cookies on the lower shelf? <laughs> so put the principles where, where everybody can get them. And, you know, one of the talks I heard early on before I even met John, he, he would talk about how do you know your purpose in life? And he said, well, there, there's three things you have to answer to know your purpose in life. First of all, what do you love? Because if you don't love something, you'll never become excellent at it. Mm. Number two, what are you good at? You might love something, but if you're not gifted in that area, forget it. And then three, what are your opportunities? 
And so he would talk about those things. And it's funny, as I got to know him and look back on my life, I realized, where do most people screw it up or miss it? All right. Most people know what they love. That's not hard to figure out. And with a little bit of help from people around you, you can figure out what you're good at. But I think most people are looking for perfect opportunities. And success comes when you embrace imperfect opportunities. Mm. Right? When you see, hey, there's something that I think I can make better. Here's a missing piece that I can add value to. Here's something I can do. And you just dig in, even though it's not perfect. I mean, I think of so many opportunities with absolute results to go into another country, to expand the business, um, and to build another division of the business. And, and never was it perfect. It always took longer and cost more. But if I saw something that I really believed was a unique way that I could add value, I pursued it. It didn't always work, but usually it does. So, you know, don't be looking for perfect opportunities, right? But look for opportunities, right? Mm. And don't be afraid to, to walk through those doors. Um, when you yeah, a lot of people are waiting for the uh, perfect place or process, but <laughs> does that ever really happen, right? And it's those people that are willing to jump in, even though the pool hasn't got chlorine in it. Now, with that, I don't know where that came from. They came out of nowhere. Uh, anything else during your time with John that was important to you being the mentoree that he, that he shared with you? There are so many. I mean, honestly, you know, and, and again, here's a lesson. Every time I was with Sean, because he mentored me for a little over two years, so we would spend a full day together every 90 days. I'd meet him somewhere. He'd meet me. And then in that process... How we originally met is I had made a donation to his charitable foundation. Um, and then ultimately, I ended up investing substantially in his charitable foundation and helping start a new one with him. So we got to spend time when we were directly working on my mentorship, which was the day I spent every quarter with him for a little over two years. But then I would join him on some of his international travels on some of the charitable projects. So I got to spend a lot of time, but I have, I have so many notes of lessons I've learned but I mean, he is all about leadership. And when I began to understand the value of leadership, you know, John says, everything, everything rises and falls on leadership. You know, and more and more organizationally, I understand that and see that. So with his mentorship, I focused on myself and my ability to lead. I looked at the leadership team around me that I had and worked to build the right leaders. Um, I work to have an inner circle and an outer circle, uh, you know, of leaders and, and, and mentors in my life. So, my goodness, there are, there are so many of those lessons, mm -hmm. my friend. Um, well, well I, I mean, part of this, um, the purpose of the show is just say, what were some of the things that insights you got from one of the foremost people? You have a very unique story there. So, two or three already that you just shared was around inner circle, outer circle, making sure, and it sounds as if you've continued down this path, Jeff, of having mentors and also people, peers that you really can connect with, that colleagues that you can share ideas, concepts, and just be with, just kind of hang out versus being quote unquote a solo entrepreneur, just living on your own. Yeah, that, that is so, so true. You know, just to give some differentiation, your inner circle, that would be the kind of the Often it's the leadership team of your company. So who are your top leaders? In my case, I have leaders for every region, Europe, Asia Pacific, North America. I have a technology leader. I have a, you know, kind of a finance and people leader. I have an operations leader, COO. So to pull those leaders together regularly, you know, and then um, have them report on what they're doing and have them and ask them questions, questions like, what do you know that I don't know that I should know about my business? 
and having regular meetings with those internal or inner circle leaders. And when you're going to make a big decision, vet that decision through them. Talk it through with them. Look for all of the positives, which as an entrepreneur I'm wired to find. But then what would be some of the, um, not just the positive outcome, but what could be some of the unintentional consequences of those decisions, right? Mm. So that, uh, that inner circle, um, you know, to have a trusted inner circle is, is, is key. To specifically to the operation development of your enterprise. But then in addition to that, to have an outer circle. Because the problem with your inner circle, as good as it is, is everybody has an agenda. They work for you. <laughs> you know, they, they have to have They want to keep Jeff happy <laughs> to a certain extent. Oh, my goodness. And you have to be so careful because ultimately, <laughs> I, I could go on for hours, Ken, but everybody lies to the king, right? Everybody mm -hmm. to a certain extent. And that has, comes out of not comes out of in malice or misintention, but they too often tell you what they think you want to hear. And so it's a real journey of developing the trust with your people where you can look them in the eyes and go, tell me what I need to hear about my business, right? Mm. So that, that, that's, and we could, that's the inner circle, you know, but again, all of them to a certain extent have a bit of an agenda because they have a job, right? Mm. And then to have sort of, you have that inner circle that you need to trust, but you need to be aware with who's everybody's capacities on a leadership level, what are their strengths, and, and be able to trust them to run your business. Um, but then to have an, an outer circle, people outside of your business that don't have any agenda except for your success, that are experienced in business and life, that can kind of be those outer circle mentors where you can talk some big decisions with that maybe you're not so sure you want to run by your, your internal leaders because it, it mm -hmm. could, could be affecting them. Or maybe they're more personal about how you lead in your leadership style, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so I think that's, uh, those are having an outer circle and inner circle. And the outer circle may be a little less formal than the inner circle with regular meetings, et cetera. But having those groups around is, uh, is really beneficial. If I was listening to this show, Jeff, and I was thinking about, you know, I don't have an outer circle, but I want to start one. You're now coaching me. Where would you suggest I go to find some potential people that could support me in that way? I would say, Ken, take a piece of paper and a pen, take some quiet time, maybe first thing in the morning, and sit down and write a list of people you admire that have had success in areas of life that maybe you haven't had yet. And think about a way you could just reach out and start a conversation with them. Mm. Mm -hmm. And just say, I'll buy you a coffee. You know, can I have a, I'd like to pick your brain about a couple ideas about leadership. And you'd be surprised how often they'll, they'd be delighted to spend time. You know, it goes back to um, John Maxwell telling the story. One of the favorite stories he tells is when he was, uh, before he got into leadership training, for which he's considered, you know, I guess, what is it, 75 books, 25 million copies sold. Um, he, he was a pastor of a church, and he had originally a small little church, and uh, at the time, he said, I want to learn how to grow this enterprise, and he wrote a letter to the, the 10 largest church leaders in America and said, can I, please, can I please buy you lunch and just pick your brain? And he wrote those letters, and two of them responded to him. And uh, he took his vacation money, because he didn't have a lot of money with his wife's permission, and flew and, or, or drove and met with them. And, and uh, he was blown away how receptive they were and how they just shared with him. And, of course, eventually, as you know, he grew to be one of the top ten churches in America and then transitioned into, from, you know, nonprofit leadership into, into corporate leadership, which he's done for, for 25 years now. But, mm. but um, successful people love to share their success. 
I think that's an encouragement, Jeff, to those people that are out there that a lot of times people would think, oh, they're going to protect themselves. But the reality is, is that it's an honor and a privilege to give back. And most people that have the right value set, that is how they think. That is how they're wired is if somebody said, well, can I, could you help me out with this? I know one of our friends, my son's friends has a business and he said, oh, I'd love to have lunch with you, Ken. And it was just, and I said, I'd love to have lunch with you to support you and that it really we're nurturing each other as we support that process. So I guess what I'm saying there from what you're suggesting to the audience is, is to just take the step and reach out. You know, the worst thing they could do is say no, but what if they say yes? And a lot of them will. Yeah, so truly successful people have that abundance mentality. And, uh, you know, they have that. They know they have the ability to create, to create success, to create business. And, and, and they're happy to share because they know that there's, it's, you know, that there's no limit to opportunities. There's just the talent and the willingness to, to, you know, to dig in and make something, something substantial happen, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, some there, there's so many lessons from my time with John, but you know he kind of elevated me to worlds and, and levels of leadership that I hadn't seen before, and I saw the the power of, of 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 leadership, which heck we see all around the world today. Countries that are great have great leaders. Companies that are great have great leaders. You know, um, organizations that are great have great leaders. Um, you know, it's uh, the and, leader. And the opposite is true, unfortunately, oh. too. Totally. Is. Just, and you, and you see that coming from a mile away. Now, if you can believe it, Jeff, we only have a few minutes left. Like, where did the time go? And so if people want to find out more about what you're doing, now I know that you mostly focus in the car business, but you speak to nonprofits, especially, I mean, you have a heart around Christian ministries as well. But, you know, anybody could get you to be a speaker or to support them. So where can they find out more about you, uh, Jeff? Well, you know, they can just send me an email, Jeff, J-E-F-F, at AbsoluteResults.com, or just go to the website, uh, AbsoluteResults.com. They could fire me an email. Um, certainly they could. But, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it is a joy to be able to share and to learn. And, you know, every time you take that chance and reach out and, and hear somebody's story and, and think through, hey, you know, what might I do in their shoes? And, you know, it, it gets you thinking again, a little bit outside your box, which allows you to be a little bit more creative. And every time you teach something, again, you have to revisit it again. And teaching something makes you a, a you know better at uh, better at it as well. So there's there's a lot of value to uh, to reaching out and sharing what you've learned. I can attest to that. Now, Jeff, with that, I always like to ask the guests. You know, you you have only a couple of things you can share with the audience that's new and fresh that we haven't uh, shared up to this point. What would you like to leave? the audience to think about or to consider beyond what you've covered so far as points of wisdom, thoughts, uh, items around their success in life that would um, you'd like to leave with them today? One thing or two things? Whatever. Two's perfect. Okay, perfect. So something I've really learned in this last season with COVID around my company, um, one of my friends and mentors shared this concept with me, and I, hey, hey, there's a book there, um, but you got to live it and work it out for there to really be a book there. But the concept is that the company is a person. All right, so when I start a company and I incorporate a business, it is a legal entity. It's a legal person, right? So I've birthed a person. So I own absolute results, but I'm also the CEO and president. So every day, rather than go, it's my company, I go, no, 
Absolute Results is a person. I have to serve the company. So what does Absolute Results, the person, need from Jeff Williams as a president and CEO? And I need to be accountable to that person, the company. Mm. Uh, you begin to look at your company as a person and say, okay, what are my responsibilities to it versus what am I entitled to get from it? And I think especially when a company is, is, is growing and smaller, that can be a bit of a pivotal experience. Do you see the company as your right and all these benefits you get because you've got this cool concept and idea that's making money at least for a season? Or do you go, okay, now how do I steward this? Because that company is a person and needs something not just from me but every employee. So when you have to make a change like COVID and go, oh my goodness, the business is changing. I need people maybe with some different skills. And I look at the different people in the organization. I say, who has the skills to best serve the company? And of course, those that maybe don't have as many skills, how do I honor them, right? But then how do I, how do I pivot and shift based on what the company needs? Mm -hmm. So that's been a real lesson I've learned probably more in the last year than ever. No, no, the second thing I kind of share is in the season of COVID, what I've really learned is to be really intentional about the why of the business. All right, so a few years ago when I was looking at the company, it was growing, it was successful, I said, what do I want the company to represent? And I began to say, what, what problems am I solving? What is the bigger why specifically in my business, in the auto business? And I began to look at the auto business and think, man, what really has to change about it? You know, there's so much going on and changes in the market, in the automobile industry, but what, what is the thing that has to change about the car business in my, in my you know, perspective? And I narrowed it down to a very simple concept. I said, the car business too long has been about extracting value from customers. You know, how much profit can I make from this transaction? You know, and it's been transaction minded. But if the car business, instead of focusing on extracting value, could focus on adding value, it would change everything. And so I began to, at the core, as I meet my leaders and as I meet my my 100 plus trainers on the road. And, and as I work with my staff, I say, guys, the why of absolute results is yes, we help dealers sell cars today and tomorrow, but we do it in a way that's all about adding value to the consumer. And if we can see everything we do through that filter of adding value, we will actually be, we will make the right decisions about techniques, about strategies that will really help that industry make the shift it needs to make as it goes through the next five to 10 very tumultuous years. So being able to what is the why, what is the core values that we espouse, and then how do we use them, and do we see our business through them? Cool. Well, Jeff, can you believe it? We're, we're, we're wrapping up already. So thank you very much for hanging up, hanging up, hanging out. How about that for a little typo? Hanging out with us today and sharing your wisdom and experience and, and life insights with the audience today. Oh, Ken, it's been a pleasure indeed, and thank you for, you know, having the vision to have this program and to be able to share different entrepreneurs, different perspectives. Again, that all help people learn and grow. Uh, well, thank you. You are welcome. So stay with us, Jeff. So you've been listening to Jeff Williams of AbsoluteResults.com. We know each other as colleagues, and you know, I can just attest to uh, Jeff's fortitude and what he's done in the industry, and really transformed and have real vision around the world to do it. So my encouragement to you is, you know, what is it that you love? What are you good at? And what are the opportunities that are around you that aren't perfect that you can embrace? And you know what, even if you don't own a business, the principles apply to yourself. You know, what is it that you love? What are you good at? What's your why? How are you serving? How are you supporting others? So think about that. And thank you as always for spending your most valuable commodity with us and that's your time if you like what we're doing please share it pass it on leave 
a positive message or rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.